Hello, and welcome to this next episode in our In Conversation series. I'm Andrew Guile, a solicitor and director here at GN Law, and as always, I'm with my colleague uh, Luke Cowles, um, one of our associate solicitors. Now, today we're going to be looking at negligence claims against the police, and there is a significant case that happened just over a year ago, a case of Robinson uh, against the Chief Constable of the West Yorkshire Police, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and so in this video, we're going to look at the, um, the basics of negligence uh, law as it applies to police cases. We're going to look at a, a previous case of Hill um, against the police, which created a situation where both claimant and defendant lawyers thought that the police were immune from being sued for negligence. And then we're going to come on to the case of Robinson, um, which certainly changes uh, the legal landscape in that regard and demonstrates quite clearly that, that immunity does not exist. But we'll go into some more detail about that and explain the, the, you know, the, different, um, the different levels at which that case looks at negligence and various tests that need to be applied. So that's where we're going to start. So um, starting, we're going to look at the basics of, of negligence. Yes, yeah, so I mean, look just very briefly as, as to how sort of negligence came about and then of course you know, the nature of what we do, we're going to be looking at this hill issue which sort of has been expounded upon somewhat since then. Um, so you've got this landmark case, Donahue v Stevenson, it's always quoted by, by law students, if you like, yeah. because it sets up the idea of this neighbourhood principle, uh, and the key quote taken from it says, that you must take reasonable care to avoid acts or omissions which you can reasonably foresee, which would be likely to injure your neighbour. Who then, in law, is my neighbour? The answer seems to be, persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act they are, that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to the acts or omissions which are called into question. Now, um, we're not going to go through all the different issues that come about, but that, that sort of moves on to getting a, a bit more robust with, with a case called Anne's v Merton, uh, London Borough, and then eventually we get to what we now have, which is this idea of a Caparo test. And I'll use the word test a little lightly because by nature of Robinson, there is reminders which we'll come to, which try to remind people it isn't supposed to be a dogmatic, rigid test that needs to be used every time if there's an already established relationship. So, for example, doctor and patient, you don't need to start looking at is there a duty of care all over again sure. because it's already established, case law establishes it, don't need to start from the beginning. But the basics of Caparo look at three things. You've got foreseeability, uh, proximity, meaning the relationship between you know the different parties, yeah. and then this idea of fairness, so is it fair, just and reasonable? Yeah. Uh, and that will establish a duty, and then of course you will look at breach, loss afterwards. We're not really going to look at breach and loss um, because their you know, duty of care in of itself is quite a, yeah. quite a difficult task. But I think... Certainly just, 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 to, just to pause, you mentioned Caparo a couple of times. So just, just in case any law students are, are watching this and, and don't know what we're talking about, um, it's of course the case of Caparo Industries PLC versus Dickman from 1990. Yes. And um, so, uh, that was a, a court of appeal case, I believe. Um, so that's where this, the, the, this test... Um, it comes from that, that is discussed uh, again in, in, in Robinson. Yes. So yeah. So that, so, so that that's that that has been seen for quite some time as a test that that, that comes out of the Caparo yes. case. 
looking at reasonable foresight, proximity, and fair, just, and reasonable. And it's, it, it's quite often the fair, just, and reasonable side of things that, that, that get looked at yeah. uh, more, more, more than anything else. And certainly, I mean, I, I presume we, we'll look at Hill now, and that's where this fair, just, and reasonable issue comes about, certainly in regards to the public authorities and, mm. and some of the issues that come from there. Yeah, so I, I said in the, in, in the intro that this case of Hill, um, uh, back from... <laughs> 1988, so actually, actually before Caparo, but that, that this, this case has been seen ever since as effectively creating an immunity um, in terms of having a situation where the police are immune from being sued in relation to any aspect of, the, of what they do or don't do so far as it relates to them exercising their investigative functions. So to put that in layman's terms, um, if the police are investigating crime, um, as a matter of public policy, in, in essence, you don't want police looking over their shoulders all the time, worrying about getting sued for negligence for you know the way in which they're taking a statement or not speaking to this witness or not putting a certain question to a witness or something like that. You want them catching the bad guys. Um, you don't want them spending all their time in court, fate, you know, uh, giving evidence sort of, in civil claims. Yeah, reopening cases that are closed, and the pursuit of reopening them isn't to actually bring someone to justice. It's just simply to pick out failures. Mm. from a sort of liability and compensation standpoint yeah. only. Yeah, so it essentially, for, for sort of like public interest um, reasons, people have viewed Hill as saying that the police's position in terms of being sued for negligence is different mm. to that of the average man in the street because there is this public policy, that, you know, desire, want, um, that they not be tied up in litigation and so they have a... There was this immunity, effectively, that, that was perceived to exist, um, in order to make sure that they, you know, um, weren't weren't getting tied up in litigation and things of that nature. Absolutely. So, so that's that's what seems to come out of Hill, and, and there are numerous cases that, that followed after Hill, where Hill was considered and reconsidered. Um, but Robinson makes a a big difference, doesn't it? It makes a big change. Well, absolutely. I think it. So some of the issues are about. Some bits which might seem obvious, but by nature, the fact that this gets to the Supreme Court means it wasn't so obvious um, within that regard. And it's just about trying to establish certain principles so that we know police don't have immunity about absolutely everything. And and so we'll look at it sort of in terms of the facts now, but the the types of key issues it looks at is, was this a case of an omission, meaning something the police didn't do? Or was this a case of a sort of proactive decision made by the police? Mm. And there's always sort of two ways of looking at things, which it gives an example, a basic level of someone who has a road accident. Is it a question of proactive decision of, of bad driving? Or is it an omission of failure to use the brakes, failure to keep a lookout? Uh, and so sort of looking at those two situations where you've got the same facts, but you can kind of glass half empty half full type issue Hmm. Um, so moving on to the sort of specific facts of Robinson yeah tell us what happened fine so we've got um, this uh, officer called DS Willen he's um, in plain clothes he sees uh, this individual called Ashley Williams dealing drugs and initially wants to arrest him but thinks well if I do arrest him he's likely to run Uh, essentially he's likely to sort of try and escape so what does he do? He calls for backup. Um, he follows Ashley Williams into a bookmaker shop 
um, decides not to arrest him in there because he thinks, well, if I try and arrest him in there, it might endanger himself, as in the officer, it might endanger some of the customers, might endanger some of the staff. So some of these things are already going through his mind about you know, potential danger. Sure. Um, outside the shop, three officers come as backup. You get DC Green, and I'm looking at my notes, DS Roebuck and DC Dermia, who arrive as backup. So you've now got four officers, all in plain clothes. You've got Ashley Williams in the bookmakers, and this is the point in which their sort of plan is formulated. So you get DS Willen and uh, DC Dermia, they decide they're going to approach from a certain particular part and they're going to be the ones to apprehend Ashley Williams and arrest him. Whilst on the opposite side of the road, essentially slightly further away, you've got DC Green and you've got DS Roebuck who decide, well, let's be sort of slightly further away on the opposite side because if he does run away, we're there to sort of try and block the escape. So you can see as part of their, their plan, it's quite obvious that they're thinking about He's him potentially away. escaping. One, you've yeah. got the fact that he's called for backup in the first place because if he didn't think he needed backup, he presumably would have thought that he could have done it himself. So it, that bit's quite established. But what then ends up happening is they um, that there are passerbys. It's it's in Kirkgate. It's described as moderately busy in terms of uh, foot traffic, and you get Mrs. Robinson who actually walks past. Uh, Ashley, well, she, she walks past initially the offices, but then walks past Ashley, Will- Ashley Williams, who's on the street, is about a yard away from him when the arrest takes place. The arrest takes place, there's a bit of a sort of kerfuffle, if you like, and bottom line is Ashley Williams ends up knocking into Ro- Mrs. Robinson, and all the officers and Ashley Williams fall onto Mrs. Robinson, uh, and she gets injury within that context. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then she obviously brings a claim. Yes, exactly. Alleging negligence. Yeah, absolutely. And the High Court say what? So, yes, I mean, initially you've got the proceedings before, they describe it in here, the proceedings before the recorder. And certainly the proceedings sort of look at these issues of negligence. And of course, at this point, they've got the advantage of CCTV. So they're pretty certain about what happened. And there isn't a huge amount of... A factual dispute about certain parts, although certainly as we see them in the judgment, certainly the Supreme Court judgment, we're not fully sure as to which facts may or may not have been um, argued at the time. We're just seeing the facts that have been accepted uh, and worked upon. So you have, for example, the, the original officer saying that, you know, had he thought that there was someone who was walking past, he wouldn't have essentially affected the arrest. But here, you've got Robinson who is there, and he says he, he simply didn't see her. You look at it and you do wonder if that's, and I'm not suggesting yeah. it's definitely not true either way, but the suggestion is Mrs. Robinson wasn't that far away from him at all, mm. bearing in mind what, what ends up happening. I mean, as I understand it, the officer said he didn't see her, but the yes. CCTV shows that she was directly in his line of sight. Yeah. And I think that's where the, uh, the conclusion that he'd been negligent on, yes. on his own evidence, exactly, um, was 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 understandably drawn, and it was the judge didn't accept that it was, you know, assuming the officer was telling the truth that he didn't see her, uh, it, it, he was clearly negligent not to have done because she was right in front of him. Yes, exactly. And so, paragraph fourteen, which sort of sort of summarises the end of that particular bit, it says the recorder held, however, that the decision in Hill v Chief Constable had conferred on the police an immunity against claims of negligence, 
In light of the decision of the Court of Appeal in Desmond, which we'll come to as a separate matter, that immunity was not confined to cases of omission. It therefore applied in the present case. So in this situation, you've got uh, Mrs. Robinson being successful. Um, she, they, they do look at Hill, but they decide that in this particular case, it isn't relevant. Um, and they do say, again, looking at this issue of Desmond, the immunity was not confined to cases of omission. And this is where it sets it up in terms of the Court of Appeal and how they go on to look at it, looking back at the Caparo test uh, and, and following sort of that issue of, well, actually, is this a case of omission or is this a case of a proactive decision being taken? Mm. Um, let's just pause there again, just to, yes. just, just to make it perfectly clear as to what we're talking about and where we're looking at. So if you look at the real, real basics of a negligence claim, yes. you need to establish the duty of care, yes. you need to establish that it's been breached, yes. and you need to establish that, that you've then suffered loss as a result of that breach. Yeah. So... What what the court at first instance essentially says is well you know of course well if if there is a duty of care and it's clearly been breached yeah. because the officer should have seen her and shouldn't have attempted yeah, to be arrested at that her. point she's clearly suffered injury as a direct result of that breach because they've all fallen on top of her so parts two and three of the test are no problem yes. but part one of the test is where Caparo comes in foresight proximity fair dressed and reasonable and it's where Hill immunity, should it exist, also kicks in. That's where it kicks in. Yeah, well, right at the start. Just reasonable. Bit. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. At, yeah, sorry, forgive me. Yeah, in relation to um, yeah, that sort of like part three, yeah. Capiro thing. Yeah. Um, so, but that's where it kicks in, right at the first hurdle. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so that's that's in terms of sort of like where we're drilling to with this. You know, uh, look yeah. at these cases. That's that's where we're drilling at in terms of um, the negligence. Uh, t- you know the the. the the more the smaller aspect of the of the negligence test when looking at the first hurdle in terms of establishing a duty of care. Yes, I think that's the thing. I mean, like you say, with that first hurdle, if you can establish the duty, the, the general facts of the case were such that there wasn't really going to be much argument if that the actual duty would have been breached. Yeah. So the issue about breach and loss, to all intents and purposes, they were always going to be found if you get past the first bit, which is whether there's a duty or not yeah. in the first place. And by nature, if there's no duty, then you know breach doesn't exist because there's nothing to breach in the first place. Yeah. So we come to the, uh, the Supreme Court. Yes, so, so you go through the Court of Appeal, um, yeah. and then we get to our Supreme Court. And you have three judges who look at this particular issue. You've got Lord Reed who gives the sort of first major judgment, uh, goes through, uh, and Lord Reed is the sort of lead judge, if you like. And you've got Lord Manson, you've got Lord Hughes. So you've got uh, Lord Reed, who is the one who sort of does all the facts and all that sort of stuff, so that covers the vast majority of it. Now, all, just to say at the outset, all three judges um, rule the same, so there's no minority decisions here. Um, they all rule in favour of Mrs Robinson, so just to sort of set out that she does win, but it's about why. And looking at some of that jurisprudence as to the development of Caparo, some of the cases, and and looking at some of the history as well. Mm. Now, just looking at, for example, let's go with the idea of public authorities. It talks about a little bit about public authorities generally and some of the issues they had before Caparo. uh, And this is because with the sort of and test, which was a sort of two-stage test before that, the only real sort of defence that 
public authorities had was the idea of if they could prove some sort of public policy to negate liability. And essentially, what, what the decisions say, and, and there's lots of different quotes about it, they say that it was just simply too difficult. So it meant a lot of people were getting litigation against them, and it was proving impossible to defend. Um, specifically here it says, and this is paragraph 113 of Lord Hughes's decision, it says, The error of Anne's lay chiefly in its effective imposition of an often impossible burden on a defendant to demonstrate that public policy ought to negate the existence of a duty of care. And this is where then looking at it sort of in this case specifically, it then goes on to look at, well, okay, fair enough, that doesn't exist anymore and we have to take Hill within that context because Hill is a decision, and I just looked at it, it's, it's 1989, but it's it's after Rands but before Caparo. Rands is the case of? Uh, this is the Merton London Borough Council, the okay. one that pre-exists Caparo, starts to put a, a sort of a two-part test in place and sort of you've got Donoghue and Stevens at the beginning, Anne's, and then Caparo, which is the landscape we, we are sort of in now. Um, looking at the initial decision about whether this was a positive act, at, at paragraph 73 it says, her complaint, again this is the complaint of Robinson, is not that the police officers failed to protect her against the risk of being injured, but that their actions resulted in her being injured. So it's looking at, well, is it an omission about them failing to see her, for example, um, or failing to keep a lookout, or is it a positive act within the context of they chose to arrest, they chose to effect an arrest at that time and place, and that is a positive decision to take into account the surroundings and then deciding to go ahead with it. Again, factually, it looks back at the original officer who says, if I had thought someone might have been within harm's way... I wouldn't have done the arrest. So again, he, the officer does admit that these sort of considerations were something he was or he had at that particular time. And, and this this positive act or omission issue yes. is 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 a relevant issue to sort out before you go on to look at whether or not a duty of care exists, and that, that's why it's important. Absolutely, because yeah. in general, omissions sort of the, the world over, they're a lot more difficult to prove in terms of trying to get duty of cares. For example, at a basic level, mm. the duty to rescue doesn't exist. Um, that's certainly for a, a private citizen. Omission cases often look at allegations against, say, the police in these circumstances where you say that they have failed to stop a third party doing something. Yes. Or they failed to prevent something from coming about. So in terms of proximity as well, that sort of uh, omission uh, idea is, is, is quite often obviously more remote Yes, um, yes. Than, than positive act cases saying, you know, you're negligent because you did this yes, rather absolutely. than you're negligent because you failed to prevent either yourself or somebody else doing something which happened and, and, and caused me uh, loss and damage. Yes. So, so it starts off by saying that this is a positive act case. You know, there's yes. obviously they decided to, to, to try and affect the arrest at that time despite her being in the line of sight albeit that they claim not to have seen her. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, with the positive act, that's one of the key things that they have to decide because ultimately everything flows from that. Mm. And, and so when they look at the ideas of foreseeability, they, they pick up on four issues at paragraph 74. It says, um, the DS had summoned assistance, which is again him showing that he had considered he's going to need it um, and that the person might run. Secondly... Mm-hmm. 
The fact that two of the officers were positioned opposite to block an escape route. Uh, thirdly, the place, which is they've decided, and again a positive decision, to arrest in this, what they describe as a moderately busy shopping street. Uh, and then the fourth thing, there were pedestrians passing close by. So those are the sort of four things they look at, and it says that reasonably foreseeable risk of injury was sufficient to impose on the officers a duty of care towards the pedestrians in the immediate vicinity when the arrest was attempted. Again, the issue being, could they have waited till perhaps there's less people around? Now, the, the dichotomy for the officers is you've got, uh, and certainly when it looks at the facts and the evidence they give, is they've got someone who's just been dealing drugs. And, and I think the officer says he'd, he'd seen him um, get a bag from something around his neck or something along these lines. Certainly from the officer's point of view, they want to arrest him while he's still got it on him because that's going to make all the difference in terms of sure. being able to charge and convict. Yep. So th- there's the difficulty of the longer they wait, perhaps he doesn't have anything on him at that point, and essentially they're not likely to necessarily get home on any sort of conviction. Um, so, so, the, so the Supreme Court accept that the, the trial judge at first instance was entitled to find yeah. that, that the, the, the officer or officers had been negligent on the basis that um, the arresting officer accepted that he had failed to notice yes. um, Mrs. Robinson, despite the fact that she was immediately in front of him. Yes. Um, so having accepted that he was right to draw that conclusion, they then go on to look at the correct test. So, so what, yes. what, what did they say about Caparo and, and Hill? So certainly in regards to Caparo, I mean, they, they look at, like we said, some established um, relationships between, say, for example, doctor and patient being probably the most common one. And they're saying, well, certain things are already established. You don't need to use Caparo all over again. Mm. And so, yeah, so there are, there are cases against the police already yes. that clearly conclude that the police have the duty of care to certain people in certain circumstances. Yes, exactly. So if you've got a case against the police, that's where you start. You see if there are any cases that already establish an identical or similar, of course you could argue whether or not they're similar, Absolutely. that's probably where one of the battle lines will be drawn. Um, but that's where you start, is seeing whether or not there's any existing case law that already establishes that there is a duty of care and then you can just go on to look at uh, absolutely at, at breach and loss uh, and the and the irony is at, at sort of paragraph 95 Lord Mance actually takes a quote from Hill which is one that doesn't always get looked at and says he actually agrees with it and here quoting from Hill it says there is no question that a police officer like anyone else may be liable in talk to a person who is injured as a direct result of his acts or omissions so he may be liable in damages for assault, wrongful arrest, wrongful imprisonment, and malicious prosecution, and also for negligence. Yeah. Now, if that's being said by Hill, which, again, bearing in mind these, this idea which colloquially people say about the Hill immunity, mm. it's forgetting it, it doesn't cover everything. It, it does cover, yeah. and, and we will perhaps, you know, the distinction they make about what it does cover is the idea of investigations that yeah. are live. So I think it's important. It's important just 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 to pause here and note that Robinson isn't saying Hill's wrong. No, not at all. It's just saying that Hill has been misunderstood. And in fact, as as, as you've just drawn from there, the court drew drew out of that case examples of where you know the dictum has stated quite clearly um, that the police are not immune from suit no. in relation to to these to these circumstances. But this is an example of where a case 
has been wrongly interpreted um, for many years and wrongly applied for many years. So, you know, it, this is an example of where, you know, students, practitioners should look at cases critically and should have the confidence to say, well, do you know what? I actually think this is being applied incorrectly. Yeah. This is not what it says. Yeah, um, And just building on the, the hill bit to try and distinguish it a little bit, um, Lord Hugh says at the beginning of his judgment, the general question of importance in this appeal is when the police do or do not owe a legal duty of care to individuals in the course of performing their public functions of investigating and preventing crime. Those are sort of principles that Hill talks about. Mm. And, and sort of looking at that, they, they still are quite content with the original sort of ideas of Hill, which do preclude certain types of litigation against them. And the reasons they give, much of which have been discussed in a lot of cases, are one, encouraging police to have a defensive frame of mind or a defensive action when they yeah. go on to a, you know, when they're investigating a particular thing. And the second thing, certainly again, public policy reasons, it's this idea, and it says diverting resources from the performance of their public functions. And, and the idea is police ultimately are there to help solve crime, prevent crime. They are not there to simply spend half their job involved in litigation as witnesses, yeah, no, which, which no doubt, negligence being a sort of floodgates issue, if it was absolutely allowed, completely, you know, again, we can agree or disagree, but we're just simply setting out the position as it exists. Um, it's not to provide no limits at all, on the one hand, so that here's an example where it shows there is a limit to this immunity, but equally, you know, they're not treated just like, a, for example, the council, who don't benefit from these types of immunities, mm. but are a public authority. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as numerous commentators have, have said since Robinson came out, I mean, th this is a highly significant case. It is, I yes. Mean, it, it, as, as practitioners, we know from experience that when if we would ever see someone in the office or from bringing cases against the police and actually advancing allegations of negligence, we would get responses and therefore we uh, found ourselves in a situation where we would have to advise clients that there was this Hill immunity Yes. Um, and you couldn't sue the police for an action directly related to their investigative functions it would know, uh, if, if, they, if that act is committed while they're investigating crime. Yeah. But just to be very, very clear, that has gone. Yes. I mean... Exactly. I mean, so when it's... It, it's not that simple. It doesn't necessarily mean that rare, every yeah, case absolutely. is now going to win. No, um, but that is not um, an argument that can be deployed. And, and I think this is a very unique situation whereby Mrs. Robinson is not the one involved in the criminal investigation. She's not, you know, either the perpetrator or the victim. She's a third party completely yeah. separately yeah. to what's gone on here. And just sort of really the battle lines are about determining whether you're going to argue what's happened is an omission or whether you're arguing that it was a positive action. And just sort of one quick note on it is a case called Michael versus Chief Constable of South Wales, quite a, quite a famous case, um, is where the police failed to respond to a 999 call and the, the sort of the judges look at the idea of on the one hand you could decide or argue it as an omission to respond to the 999 call, but the actual claimants, they argued it as a list of positive acts that were done by the police. So, for example, misreporting of the initial crime report when it came in. 
And I think certainly from a claimant's position, trying to argue it as positive actions mm. is going to definitely, quite undoubtedly, improve your position. Try, you mentioned it earlier, trying to argue omissions yep. is a lot more difficult. And so when you're going to look at the two different things, you're going to try and look at, well, what are the positive decisions or positive actions taken by the police? Yes, there might be omissions in addition, but Robinson, it's not the omission of not seeing Mrs. Robinson, it's the decision to arrest at that time, at that place, in that circumstance. And that's certainly what they want to ensure that police are or remain liable for. Yeah. And the irony is this case isn't saying that it's only as of now that they're liable for it. They actually look at other examples, which are sort of, we're not going to look at them right now, but they, they look at other examples where this has come up before. Uh, and just, I think it's just a way of trying to remind people of that distinction, rather than just simply people having this sort of diatribe of, Hill exists, therefore you have no case, when that's simply... Yeah. Not the situation. No, you've got you, you've got to go deeper now. Yes, you, and you've got you've got to look you, you um, look at the proper test and look at whether it's fair, just and reasonable in the circumstances um, to impose a duty. Yes, if you can't already identify one that's already sitting there in case law. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, from a claim perspective, a very welcome judgment. Yes, um, and certainly one thing that perhaps we can um, offer as a as, as a takeaway from from this video is that. Careless conduct by police officers when investigating or suppressing crime, which causes a foreseeable physical injury, will now, or certainly can now, result in liability and negligence. Yes. Um, whereas previously it would have been, we certainly problematic. Would it would have been very difficult because we would have had Hill quoted at us. Um, so, as an example, that uh, one that's um, occurred to me is that recently with the spate of um, uh, moped crime. Yes. Uh, one of the things that the police have been doing is knocking them off their bikes. Um, and I'm not talking here about um, a claim being brought by the person knocked off their bike and being talked, you know, if you imagine a circumstance where they could have knocked a person off their bike next to a, an empty field, but they don't take that opportunity, they wait a bit, a, a bit further until the person's halfway through a village and they knock them into a crowd of people, yes. um, you're clearly now going to be able to claim. Whereas previously, undoubtedly, you would have faced an argument in, in what is clearly um, a situation where you should be able to recover damages uh, for negligence. Um, you, we would, as practitioners, have faced an argument uh, uh, that, Hill, that Hill applied. Well, because we would simply argue that knocking him off is a positive decision. It's a yes, positive act. Clearly. You didn't have to. You could have waited, etc., etc. Yes. Pretty much the same circumstances here. You're just replacing the action of arrest with knocking and knocking someone off a bike. Yeah. And all the political bits that come with whether that's a good or bad decision, slightly beyond the scope of this. But just to sort of conclude a little bit, I mean, albeit there are a number of different other things that come out of this case as well, um, looking at the different exceptions that exist, we're going to sort of conclude a bit where we... At around the same time, you had a decision called DSDV Commissioner come out, which is quite a well-known case. It's about the war boys who... Um, raped women whilst taxi, being a London taxi driver. driver yeah. Absolutely, and in there, um, the case is brought under Article Three, uh, and it's just a reminder how certainly under the ECHR there are some cases which might have very similar facts, but by bringing them under the guise of the ECHR, that might get around 
dare I say, some parts of negligence which might otherwise, in, in domestic law, not work. Uh, and so here you've got the, the women bringing the case on the basis that the, the police failed to conduct infect, effective investigations and this amounted to a breach under the Article 3 rights, mm. obviously, in terms so of... So clearly looking at an omission. Well, absolutely. Because yeah. um, so, yeah. here you've got a situation of police not essentially not catching him quick enough yeah. because they're not taking people's reports seriously at an earlier stage, um, which is you know very similar to Hill in the regards of you know, having had the suspect in custody and letting him go, and then he commits further, effect, uh, further acts. But here you've got, again, a situation women making crime reports, police simply not taking them seriously, and that allows him to go on and commit further and further crimes. Yeah, but they're successful, uh, and, and that's very useful to know. Again, another thing that sort of, albeit they don't bring it under negligence, it, it, it has situations that are very, very, in terms of the facts, very useful within this sort of area of law. Yeah. So even in a circumstance where you might have a much tougher job establishing um, that it's fair, just and reasonable to impose a duty of care because you're talking about an omission as opposed to a positive act, you still, well, we still as practitioners have um, you know, this, this uh, avenue open to us in terms yes. of then looking at a separate test, which will come under the Article 3 breach, Yes, exactly. um, which was often used before Robinson to try and Absolutely. get round uh, the, the hill immunity well absolutely because when the case would have been brought by nature it was brought before Robinson was actually decided bearing in mind they were yeah. you know they came I think they came out the same month February last year yeah well thank you for joining us uh, once again there are many other videos in our In Conversation um, series which you might find helpful so please uh, watch those if you've enjoyed this um, video then please feel free to share it and um, we thank you once again for joining us <laughs>